ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of the INC Preview Show, taking place on a Tuesday as opposed to a Monday. Long story about that, we'll get into that in a lot more detail, but I am Carl Bamage and I'm joined as ever by John Marsh and MMA. John, thank you very much once again for joining us. What's up, Carl? How's it going? Yeah, we're making this a little, little bit of a tradition. That's three pay-per-views in a row, but they have all been great. Um, this pay-per-view is not exactly the highest quality, but I'm still excited for a lot of fights, some good flyweight fights, and I can't wait to analyze all these fights with you. Certainly so. It's, um, it's going to be an interesting one to cover, I think, because um, on the whole, I think that the last couple of pay-per-views have been very strong in terms of star power. Obviously, the main events have all done very well. This is one of those where... It's much more for the hardcore fans. I think that's a nice way to say it. Yeah, that is a good way of putting it. And I think you really just have to appreciate the lower weight classes to appreciate this pay-per-view because, personally, I think Marino and Figueroa are some of the most exciting fighters in the entire sport. Their past few fights have just been nonstop action. So if you watch the past few fights, you understand and appreciate how exciting these guys are, especially like Brandon Royval. Both of his fights in the UFC been exciting. We got Joaquin Buckley on the card coming off of his crazy knockout. So there's a lot to like about this card. You just got to look into these matchups and realize that there's some pretty good fights. Certainly so, and we'll be getting into those fights in a lot more detail later on in the show. Um, if you do enjoy what we're doing, then we do have our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. And you can also follow us on Twitter as well. That's twitter.com forward slash incagefighting. So if you want to keep abreast of any of my own personal opinions, that's exactly the place to go. And you can also follow John on his own uh, social media empire, as it were. Yeah, I'm uh, at UFO underscore UFC on Twitter and my YouTube channel, SoundCloud channel, Apple Podcasts. You can find me at Martian MMA where I release a podcast talking about the betting lines for every UFC event um, for the past about 115 UFC events in a row. So you can check out my podcast there. So this is the UFC 255 preview show. We will be for the next sort of hour and a bit. We'll be talking about all the fights which will be taking place, all five main card fights, as well as touching on the noteworthy prelims that you can expect on ESPN. Before we get there, though, we need to talk a little bit about this card itself, and we sort of touched on it in terms of the intro. Like, given what's been happening in the world, and I'm not trying to downplay all the severity of like COVID-19, etc. From an MMA perspective and a UFC perspective. 2020 has been a very strong year in terms of the pay-per-views. If you look at those numbers from, like, say, for 249, the first lockdown pay-per-view through the 254, all of these shows bar one have done over half a million buys. And you've had big fights on there as well, Adesanya and Costa, Khabib versus Gagey. And you were left with this feeling that everything was going to crescendo and we're going to have a fantastic end to the year. And, like, December's going to be, like, a super show like it normally is. And then 255 comes along and you knew that the the hot streak was going to come to an end but even despite that two flyweight fights it just feels a little bit underwhelming yeah good point about the pay-per-view sales um i think i take those numbers with a bit of a grain of salt because i don't think they're really uh, verified by a third party but the numbers they're releasing are good i think the the first one 249 did seven or eight hundred thousand khabib sold well israel adesanya sold well and I don't think this pay-per-view will sell well, unfortunately, but uh, I think it should, though. I mean, if 
people realize how exciting of a fighter Davison Figueredo was, if they were going and watching his YouTube clips, his fight pass fights, they would realize this guy is easily one of the most entertaining fighters in all of MMA. So if fans were really looking for the best fights, they would be buying this pay-per-view. But they kind of like the personalities. Of course, Connor still sells better than everybody, and his last fight only lasted 40 seconds. But it looks like they'll recover in January. It looks like Connor's going to fight uh, Poirier in January, hopefully. So they might not have their traditional end-of-the-year good pay-per-view card this year, but they'll probably bounce back with a good card in January. And you brought up a great pre-show discussion point here, which is the rumours about Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. All roads seem to indicate it will headline USC 257 in January. This is arguably one of the most eagerly anticipated fights for a long time. And not only, obviously, because of Conor McGregor and his star power, but you've got a guy in Dustin Poirier who has a history with him before the USC 178. Uh, ironically, that fight was on the undercard of a flyweight bout. I think Demetrius Johnson headlined that one. Uh, but just Dustin Poirier, since that fight, has completely turned himself around in terms of his fighting style, in terms of his attitude to the sport. And a lot of people would have thought if they fought, say, 2015, Conor would have walked through him again. The improvements that Dustin has made have been so substantial that could very well be a competitive fight. Yeah, the improvements that Dustin Poirier has made since then, I think, uh, are much more significant than Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor I could have been on his peak when he was coming up in that featherweight run, when he was knocking people out left and right. That was definitely, I think, the most fun I've ever had watching the sport of MMA as a fan, when Conor was just getting more and more popular each fight and knocking people out easier and easier. It was truly amazing to watch. Um, but you got to think that that first fight ended a little prematurely. I mean, it's not it's not Connor's fault. I mean, he touched him on the back of the temple. The fight was over by round one knockout in 90 seconds. But we really didn't get to see them develop. Now that they're both fighting at 155 pounds, Poirier is much more durable, can take shots much better, as evident by his wars that he has been in with uh, Holloway and Hooker. I just think that this fight is going to be so much more interesting. We're going to see both guys uh, more hydrated. They're going to be able to take better shots. We're going to—I hope it's competitive. You know, I really hope we don't see another early knockout. I want to see these two guys box for a few rounds and really see who gets the better of one another. And I really like Poirier's chances. If you got to look at who's done the more relevant work in lightweight lately, nobody on earth would argue that. Uh, McGregor has done more. He hasn't won a lightweight fight in over four years. Meanwhile, Poirier has been beating the best of the best at lightweight. I think Poirier is really prepared for this rematch. And, I mean, I'm really excited for it. Haven't gotten uh, into the specific predictions yet. I, I need to do a little more tape analysis of this one to come to my official conclusion. But as of right now, I really like Poirier's chances. I'm sort of leaning towards Dustin Poirier in that one. Obviously, if that fight does take place, we'll go into that in a lot more detail come January time. Hopefully, the world will be in a much better place uh, once we get there. And if we go into 2021, another fight that we could well be seeing is Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blachowicz. Story goes that um, Adesanya will be given a chance to be a two-way champion. A lot of people maybe have some question marks about that. One, are they diluting the idea of the double champ gimmick again by giving Adesanya this opportunity? But also, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we have a well-deserved number one contender light heavyweight in Glover Toshiba. Yeah, I don't like the move at all. I think it was announced a little bit too prematurely. Um, they announced it before Glover won his fight, and I think that um, people kind of forgot about that fight. 
uh, thinking that I think that was a pretty clear number one contender fight. Uh, Glover Teixeira won it in pretty impressive fashion. You know, went through some fire to get there. Was definitely hurt and rocked a few times, but he still withstood that early storm from Thiago Santos. Got him down. Amazing performance. You know, the 41-year-old Glover is one of the most universally loved fighters in the entire sport. So seeing him go out there get that win, that was great. And I really do think he sh- he does deserve the next shot at Jan Blahovich. Blahovich hasn't defended his belt. I cannot stand this double champ thing where people haven't even defended their belt and they're immediately changing weight classes. I understand why they did it because there's not really a clear contender at middleweight. I think uh, Jack Hermanson, Robert Whitaker. I mean, well, I think Robert Whitaker is the clear number one contender, let's say that. But do we want to do that rematch just a year after he fought uh, Israel Desanya? I don't really know. Uh, I personally, I would like to see maybe Whitaker get another uh, win before he does that. But if Whitaker is ready now for Israel Desanya, I say let the rematch happen. Uh, we also have Jack Hermanson on the horizon, who, who if he beats Kevin Holland, might have a, a claim to a title shot. So I understand why they did it, kind of a lack of clear contenders, but I still disagree with it overall. I don't think the fight would be very interesting. I mean, I think that Isra Adesanya would be at such a speed advantage. He would be so much more accurate, and I do not think it would be a competitive fight. I think Israel would make pretty quick work of Jan Blachowicz. My big issue with that is, and I sort of touched on it in terms of the intro, is... I've never been a big fan of double champs. I think if anybody follows me on the Twitter feed, you'll know how I feel about that. Because I think the one thing it does more than anything is it stalls two divisions at one time. It's it's almost impossible to defend both belts without mothballing one division to try and do so. And I just think if you are a middleweight or a light heavyweight and you're sort of in that pecking order, your chances of maybe fighting for a title in your prime are going to be diluted just so the UFC can just have that Kodak moment of the champion holding two belts. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a promotional tactic. The only guy who's ever come close to defending them, um, I guess, was Daniel Cormier and Cejudo, but they defended it at the higher weight class. They both had the lower weight class. Cejudo had 125. DC had the light heavyweight championship. They move up. They won the higher weight class and then defended that higher weight class one time, but that was it. They're not dropping back down. Um, I guess Amanda Nunes technically does that, but yeah, the, it, it's a prop. It's a, a like you said, a, a Kodak moment, a photo shoot moment, and it doesn't really even translate to, to sales, in my opinion. No one is saying, "Hey, let's watch Daniel Cormier win his second belt this weekend." Uh, I mean, it, it, you got to take things on a fight to fight basis. So I think that they think that. Blahovich versus Adesanya is not a great fight on its own, and adding this double champ to it makes it somehow a better fight. I disagree with that. I still think it's not a very uh, exciting or motivating fight for either guy. Well, we saw the uh, the pay-per-view number perspective with Nunes because USC 250 did, what, 80,000 buys? Which is like <laughs> the lowest, I think it's like the lowest drawing show in sort of post-Ultimate Fighter either. So it's not having as much media pull as what the USC like to think it is. Yeah, shocking, right? I never would have thought that Amanda Nunes wouldn't sell. I mean, I think that she completely would have turned the tide next pay-per-view. Amanda Nunes uh, versus Megan Anderson would have sold 2 million buys, I'm predicting. 256 Um, is probably one of the few times I can think of where a card loses its main event and gets more appealing to the casual fans. Yeah, because what's the co-main event for that again? Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling. Hell of a fight. Oh, yeah. The... 
clearly superior fight. If they ran those fights out a hundred times each, I guarantee you that Jan versus Aljo would be more exciting one hundred times out of one hundred. So that is the much better fight. Jan versus Aljo, I think two of the top ten best pound for pound fighters in the UFC right now. Uh, that is the clear deserving main event, and they deserve that spotlight. So it, you're right; it was a blessing in disguise for that fight to get canceled. We are going a little bit off topic. Um, we do need to get back to UFC 255 because I know that's what a lot of our viewers are interested in us talking about. Before we actually get onto the main card itself, we're going to talk a little bit about the prelims. Now, a big selling point of this show has been sort of the showcase of the flyweights, both the males and the females. And we can see that again in terms of the prelims, including our headliner there, potentially a title eliminator at 125. Brandon Moreno is taking on Brandon Royval. Royval carrying a lot of hype after the Kai Kara France win, but Brandon Moreno is no slouch as well. Former Ultimate Fighter contestant had a fantastic match with Pantoja on that show. He's really come into his own recently, and I've said this for a long time, flyweight is incredibly underrated, and if you look at the actual quality of these matchups, you can have some entertaining fights. Yeah, I fully agree with all that. I mean, I've been so impressed with Brandon Marino since he's come back to the UFC. He was cut from the UFC after losing to Sergio Pettis and Pantoja, two tough guys. Left the UFC, did some jiu-jitsu competitions, won some fights outside the UFC in LFA, and then came back. And in my opinion, he beat Askar Askarov, even though that fight was declared a, a split draw. And then he soundly beat Kaikar France and Juicier Formiga as well. The Formiga fight was a bit close. He was in some bad grappling positions there, but I think Marino has really improved every aspect of his game. His defensive grappling, his cardio, his offensive boxing. He's been become so much more of a potent striker, and he actually has very good defense. I've been so, so impressed with the improvements that Brandon Marino has made. And uh, before the UFC, Carl, what were you thinking about Brandon Royval? I want you to hear your thoughts on what your thoughts on him when he was coming in to fight Tim Elliott. What were you thinking about Royval? Well, in terms of what I'd seen from Royval's um, stuff in LFA, he he seemed like a bit too much of a guard specialist. I mean, he does have some fantastic submissions, but he just seemed a little bit too content to just lay on his back and to try and go for that submission, which, hey, if you get that done, fantastic. But as we saw against Casey Kenny, Kenny just completely neutralized that grappling threat that Royval had, and he ended up getting the decision. So I wasn't expecting much against Tim Elliott, but Tim Elliott's one of those guys who, he's always capable of losing a fight in the easiest of fashion, and that was what happened up against uh, Royval. The Carver France fight did make me change my opinion of him because that was, he had so much more confidence in his striking than I ever expected. I thought Carver France was just going to light him up, and credit where it's due, Royval did fantastic there. Taking on Moreno, it's a big ask. I would favour Brandon for that one because I think he's the more all rounded fighter. But a guy that unpredictable as Royval is always going to be dangerous. Uh, you said you'd favor Brandon. Uh, you mean Marino? Because we've got two Brandons. Oh, yes, Brandon Moreno. Yeah, Brandon's going to yeah. win that fight. <laughs> yeah, one Brandon will certainly come up on top. Um, yeah, I agree with what you said about Royval coming into the UFC. I actually picked against him and bet against him in both of his fights so far on Elliott and against Kaikar France. I had the same thought. He was a little bit too reliant on his jiu-jitsu, on his submissions. He didn't really have reliable wrestling. His striking was a little sloppy, in my opinion. And good guys who are heavy on top, who are good wrestlers, were able to neutralize him like Kenny did over their five-round fight. 
and Tim Elliott was having a lot of success. It was winning the first, I'd say, six or seven minutes versus Roy Ball. But I never seen Tim Elliott get so tired. I thought he gassed out uncharacteristically in that fight and got real tired in round two. Roy Ball reversed position and then arm triangled him. So I thought Roy Ball did well um, staying tough and staying in that fight. But in my opinion, he didn't really show much impressive skill in that fight he was taken down several times stuck on his back a lot in that fight and kind of only won because uh, Tim Elliott gassed out in my opinion and then he really did show me something versus Kai Car France he got hurt with an overhand right in that fight hit that crazy spinning elbow that dropped Kai Car France and then Kai Car France never really recovered uh, Brandon uh, Royval was rocked in that fight he recovered and started putting it on Kai Car France Kaikar France never recovered, and Royval just swarmed him with offense for the rest of the fight and then jumped on that nasty guillotine in round two. He impressed me a bit in that fight. Not He didn't impress me enough to think that he has a good chance against Marino. I do think Marino just has him beat everywhere here. I think Marino has the defensive grappling, the takedown defense to avoid getting taken down, avoid getting submitted. I mean, even Juicier Formiga, one of the best grapplers in UFC history, definitely I think the best grappler in flyweight history. Uh, maybe Demetrius Johnson is the only guy who rivals him. Marino was able to escape a lot of positions, wasn't able to get submitted by him, so I doubt Roy Ball is able to submit him, and I just give Marino a pretty significant striking advantage here, so I'm picking against Roy Ball again, I think Marino wins, I think he could win by knockout, because I think this will be a, a pretty lopsided fight on the feet for Marino, and I guess I will go with Marino by knockout as my official pick. Another guy that's um, getting a lot of interest as well in the prelim portion of this card, uh, fresh off arguably the greatest KO in UFC history, Joaquin Buckley's back in action. He's taking on Jordan Wright, a UFC sophomore. He won his debut, I believe, in about under two minutes. I think it was a doctor stoppage, that one. Um, a lot of intrigue, obviously, because of what happened in Buckley's last fight. Do you think he gets it done against Jordan Wright? Yeah, good points about the greatest knockout of all time. I don't like to distinguish what the greatest is because when you add Yair's uh, last second knockout, I think that's incredible. But on pure technique alone, I think this one has got to be up there. It doesn't have the crazy circumstances that some other knockouts do have behind them. But on technique alone, this is one of the craziest athletic moves I've ever seen that Buckley pulled off. And I think he could be getting a little overvalued in the betting lines because in the betting lines, he's actually a minus 270 favorite, a pretty significant favorite here when he was the underdog uh, to both Holland and to um, Impa Kasaganai in their fights. But I thought he did well in the Impa Kasaganai fight even before the knockout. He was doing well with his pressure. He's got that southpaw boxing, very aggressive and explodes with combinations of punches to the head and the body. Very skilled striker is Buckley. And Jordan Wright, if you watch his contention, series fight against Anthony Hernandez it was a very quick fight only 45 seconds but Wright was pressured he got moved back to the cage very easily he did not have good boxing defense and he got knocked out instantly so we really haven't seen Wright fight many good fighters he did pick up some nice wins since that loss to Hernandez but he has not fought anybody in near the caliber of Buckley, in my opinion. And I think Buckley will have success pressuring. He will land his hands. And I think there's a good chance we see right fold to another knockout here. Even if Buckley doesn't get the knockout, I still favor him um, to win a decision based on landing the more impactful shots. Wright is not a bad fighter. He's an athletic guy with some good striking. But as I mentioned, I just do not think he's fought the level of competition to pick him over a tough, powerful guy like Buckley. What are you thinking about this one, Carl? Well, I'm always a little bit wary of any fighters to come from Explored. So I see that, that good record on Jordan Wright's name and I do think to myself how good is this guy actually. Um, I thought he looked impressive enough in his debut. Um, 
I hope that Buckley isn't getting too carried away because you sometimes see that with a guy who gets like a highlight reel knockout, they've got the world at their fingertips and then they just fail to perform next time out. Like I think about um, Edson Barboza, got that spinning knockout against Terry Etim, went up against Jamie Varner, got knocked out in the first round. So, yep. and then obviously there's some stories coming out about Buckley and some of his attitude behind the scenes and I just, I hope that, I hope that doesn't taint him too much just getting that good knockout and he's going to come into this thing and it's going to be a walkover because you can't do that in the sport. Yep, I agree. I feel, I, I'm hoping that he stays on track here, but as I mentioned, he is a huge favorite. There's no way I would be betting him as this huge, big of a mm. favorite. There might actually be uh, some value. Might be a good bet on Jordan Wright because uh, we could be seeing the market overrate Joaquin Buckley. I think there are people out there who probably saw his last knockout and said, oh, I'm going to bet on this guy next fight no matter what. And that's why you see him as such a heavy favorite. So definitely wouldn't bet on him, but I will pick and uh, be cheering for Buckley here. Yeah. And just for the record, I'm a little bit old school. Greatest knockout of all time, P.D. Williams versus Mark Coleman. Uh, what, what is that one? First head kick knockout in UFC history. Oh, with the shoes on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That one is great. The shoes make it great. Yes. Not for Mark <laughs> Coleman, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sent his nose back into his skull, probably. Um, another quirky thing I've noticed in terms of the prelims is... There's a little bit of a family connection as well on some of these cards because originally the plan was for the Corsair brothers, uh, who were both on the Contender series, they were supposed to be making their USC debuts on this card. Orion unfortunately pulled out, it's going to be replaced by Daniel Rodriguez against Nicholas Dolby. That's going to be a hell of a fight, by the way. Lewis makes his debut uh, as the main fight, as the first fight on the prelims up against uh, Sasha Polatnikov. But also as well, we've got Antonina Shevchenko. She's going to be taking on Ariane Lipsky on the same card as Valentina. So I just find it quite quirky that we've got uh, two sets of siblings who were supposed to be on this card. Yeah, that is a bit of a weird thing. I wish Orion got to stay on the card. Uh, I'm actually more impressed with Orion Kossi than Lewis. Lewis has a bunch of first-round knockouts over knock-rate competition, but... Uh, Orion looked like an insanely durable athlete with great pressure, and he won his contender series in much more impressive fashion. And I really liked Orion Kossi as an underdog against uh, Nicholas Dalby. They got a good replacement for that fight, though. Daniel Rodriguez is stepping in there. That should be a fun fight. And the Shevchenko sisters always training with one another, helping each other prepare for their fights. And I think that that'll be a good thing. Maybe we won't have to hear Valentina in Antonina's corner this time, which would be... A welcome relief. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, Val in Antonina's, Antonina's last fight, Val didn't have many opportunities to cheer because Antonina faced, uh, I call it Khabib Chukagian in that fight. <laughs> she was taken down and absolutely mauled on the ground. It was almost like a 30-24, I think, in that fight. Um, so I like I like the chances for the the brothers and sisters in this fight. I'm, I'm favoring Shevchenko against Lipsky. Uh, obviously favoring Val over Maya and uh, Kasi is a pretty huge favorite over Plotnikov too. Um, so the brother and sister combo should roll in this card. Uh, let's get uh maybe we can get Kyle Dockhouse's brother Chris Dockhouse on this card too to to really um buff up that brother sister dynamic. Certainly so, and I have to say as well, Shevchenko versus Lipsky, that's, um, that's a fight the dads are going to enjoy, I put it that way. <laughs> yes, uh, I think so too, yeah. I'm actually pretty confident I, uh, in Shevchenko in that one. I actually already bet on Antonita Shevchenko in that one. I just think that she's the better striker. She will really do damage in the clinch, and Lipsky is kind of a low-level fighter. A lot of 
low-level wins on her record. And she Lipsky gets stuck on her back for mm. long periods of times, like seven, eight minutes of fight sometimes. So uh, I got to go with Antonita in that one. And speaking of fighters who enjoy being on their back, it t- brings us on to our first fight of the card because we're going to the light heavyweight division. And Shogun Shua, the number 14 seed, absolute legend in the game. He's going to be taking on uh, Paul, my boy Paul Craig, the number 15 seed here. Um, this is a rematch, of course, from Fight Night Sao Paulo back in 2018, uh, which was arguably one of the worst fight cards of all time. But the one thing that did stand out from that show was this fight, which I don't think anyone expected Paul Craig to perform as well as he did. And he pushed an absolute legend, albeit one which is maybe past his best, all the way and got a draw out of it. Yeah, we, we can definitely say that he has passed his best. Um, Shogun, I think, has been on the way out for arguably seven years or something like that. Has been just a slow, steady decline. But he still went in fights. He won that fight against uh, Lil Nog by split decision pretty recently. Uh, I'm trying to pull up the odds for the first time they fought here. So we saw that Paul Craig was a plus 185 underdog the first time they fought. Earlier this week, he was a minus 185 favorite. So despite the first fight being a draw, it seems like the odds have completely flipped. And now Craig is a bigger favorite here. What do you think about that, Carl? That the, the betting lines have flipped since the first fight. I think a lot of that might be due to what we saw against um, what we saw from Shogun up against uh, Little Knock, which it wasn't. It wasn't Chuck versus Tito free bad, but it was it was sad to see those two in that kind of state. It could have been a lot worse, don't get me wrong, but Shogun deserved to win that fight. But the other factor as well, Paul Craig was coming off another first round submission against a guy, yeah, maybe not the best um, best fighter in the UFC. But Paul Craig is slowly grinding out these victories. He's unbeaten in his past three. He was sort of like trading wins and losses for a long time. A lot of people thought he could have got cut if he lost against Ankoliath. He's grinding out the results. The UFC obviously like him because he's a finisher, win or lose. Um, the, the issue I have with Paul Craig, though, is his offense is very one note. We know he's a great jiu-jitsu guy. We know he likes to pull guard, try and t- uh, attack off his back. And while his striking has improved, he had success with his striking up against uh, Shogun in the first fight, rocked him in that first round. He's not comfortable enough with it to be like a true mixed martial artist. And I just can't see someone as wily as Shogun falling into that trap. Yeah, I do agree with that. He was outstriking Shogun in the first fight, but that was pretty much just on like athleticism and speed, in my opinion. He was just pouring it on Shogun landing strikes. And Shogun, I don't really think, has the power to come back and to hurt Craig with strikes. I mean, maybe he does. Maybe we're underestimating him a little bit. But it doesn't seem like he really has that counter-punching ability to withstand the early shots and come back with his own harder shots. So on the feet, I do favor Paul Craig here just based on, as I mentioned, speed, athleticism, and output. I think he's going to be throwing the more strikes. And I do have big major concerns over how much time he spends on his back. I mean, that first fight, he spent, I think, around seven minutes on his back in that fight. Round one, he got a kick caught and taken down. Round two, he got... Uh, er- no, round, excuse me, round one is when he lit Shogun up. Round two is when he got a kick caught, spent some time on his back. And then round three, he got taken down and just played guard for three or four minutes in, in the entire round and just stayed on his back and lost that decision. I'm kind of surprised that was a draw. I guess the judges, I think it was yeah, a split draw. So one judge gave that first round 10-8. 
and then the other two rounds to Shogun, and then two judges uh, had it going Craig 29-28, and then Shogun 29-28, a rare split draw. But I don't think you can be betting on Shogun at all at, at this age, at, in his condition. I wouldn't be rushing to, uh, to bet Craig as a favorite either, but I do think that Craig is a pretty comfortable favorite in this fight. I would cap him at around 60-65%. I think he will win a close 29-28 decision, um, but there's no way you can be betting on him with how much time he spends on his back. And um, it's going to be a, probably a sad fight. It's funny that they're doing the rematch this soon, but I hope that Craig gets the win. I think it will be better for the UFC rankings if Paul Craig was to win. Because <laughs> um, I think some because I think you need I think a division like light heavyweight you need as many sort of younger fighters coming up to the fore and I mean I know we're giving Glow for a lot of praise but the outsiders looking in will say how good is this division when you got like a 41 year old who's the number one contender as good of a story as that is I do favor Shogun between the two to be honest because as I mentioned before I find Paul Craig's offense quite one note. And I don't think he has the confidence in his hands to give Shogun problems there. So really, Paul Craig needs to submit Shogun to try and win this fight. And if you look at Shogun's record, he's only ever been sub once. And that was in his fifth fight against Babalu. And we all know how good of a submission guy Babalu was. So I think it's going to be very hard for Paul Craig to try and submit Shogun off his back. If he does, it'll be a hell of a win, like a real feather in the cap to Paul Craig. But I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I actually, I actually think that Paul can't win by submission, and he only can win by the decision or knockout. So we're, we're a little opposite on this fight. I think that Shogun has just looked so um, chinny lately. He's just so late into his career that I think that if Craig uh, hurts him with another strike and pours it on, the referee could stop it. Um, we were mildly close to a, a, a stoppage in the first fight. Um, Craig was swarming him a little bit, but just didn't have consistent enough offense to get a finish. And I think decision is really the most uh, likely path to victory for Craig. He's got to use his uh, cardio advantage, his youth, his speed to just outlast Shogun over the 15 minutes to do a little more work. And I think he will do enough to win two out of three rounds. But it will still be a close decision. So if you're risky, if you have a high tolerance for risk, Shogun as an underdog might be a good bet. If, and do you think this is the last time we see Shogun? It's really hard to tell because I think that we, the, the last time we could have seen him was when he got a flatline versus Anthony Smith. But then technically, I think the guy is what, like 5-1-1 five and, five, one and one in his past seven fights. So who are we to tell the guy he should retire? He's had some great come. I mean, I think the Tyson Pedro comeback was, was great. I mean, I counted him out of that fight. And he still is a very... Um, gritty grinding type of fighter he does not quit in there at all so you know respect to the legend uh it would be nice to see him go out on a win uh retire on a win but i'm gonna be still going with my prediction of craig decision here i mean i'm just looking at some of the people who were uh, shogun's uh, beaten in this um sort of mini revival he's got going so he's had to draw with paul craig and the lost to anthony smith but other people he's beaten the corby anderson that's a hell of a win uh considering what he's doing in bellator these days Two wins over Little Nog, um, Jean Vellante, and the Tyson Pedro comeback, as you mentioned. So, it, they're not elite names, but he's getting the job done. Yeah, I do think we saw a bit of a gap between that Vellante win and the year and a half layoff between that and the Smith fight, and then of course he gets knocked out by Smith. And I think that we have seen 
we're seeing the lowest version of Shogun ever. Yes. He, he is um, definitely not the same as he was in 2016 and 17 when he beat Corey Anderson and Belante. But he still can get takedowns. He still can uh, keep top position. And that might be all you need to beat Paul Craig here, to just get on top, stay safe, not get submitted, and just win the rounds. So we move on to fight number two. Um, now I'm going to start by saying a little bit of a controversial statement. This is one of those things which I can picture a lot of people giving me ridicule for this, but hey, trust me, I've had a lot of ridicule when it comes to this show before. Most of it involving my voice. Yeah. I'm nowhere saying the women's flyweight division is very good. It is one of the weakest divisions in the UFC right now. However, in my opinion, there has been a big upturn in quality over these past 12 months to the extent that I think women's flyweight is now better than bantamweight, women's bantamweight. Yeah, that's a very good claim, I'd say. Um, I mean, Aldana was kind of the only hope we really had at uh, bantamweight, and she kind of got her hype train derailed, and Holly Holm dominated her. And now Holm, I guess, is the number one contender at bantamweight. Again, nobody wants to see that fight again. Nobody wants to see another Holly Holm title shot. So, yeah, I would agree that Flyweight has had a bit of revival, and it's kind of been a lot based to Calvillo, I'd say. She's um, the surging number one contender. We got Jessica Andrade, which added a lot of life to the division. Very interesting that Chukagian is getting this quick of a turnaround. I mean, I think that it's going to be less than a month but after she got uh, knocked out by Andrade, right? Maybe four weeks at most. Um, she didn't suffer a ton of damage in that fight, you know, getting TKO'd by body shots, but it's still very interesting they're giving her this quick of a turnaround. Well, the story goes, I've been following Lauren Murphy on Twitter. She's been quite vocal about this. The story goes that the uh, the UFC wanted to do the original planned fight for 254, which was uh, Calvillo versus Murphy, uh, to do this on this card. And Lauren Murphy turned it down. Her thinking was... Well, at that point, you sold it to me as a number one contender fight. I would have taken it back then. But you've already told me that Andrade is going to be getting that next title shot. So why should I be taking on Calvillo now? When you're going to have to book me in another fight a couple of months later. And say that's the new number one contender fight. So I sort of understand from Lauren Murphy's perspective where she's coming from. And the moment she said that, they immediately booked Chukasian up against Calvillo. I know you're quite high on Calvillo, but I'm, I'm not as sold on her as what the UFC have been. I mean, if you look at Calvillo's uh, UFC career, she's always been on a pay-per-view main card, or at least the core main of a fight night. And I understand why the UFC get behind some fighters. I mean, I understand why they're so high on Hebas, for example, who's great striking, great grappling, infectious personality attractive girl as well which I don't like bringing up but it is important when it comes to women's MMA and with Calvillo she is a good grappler she's got great jiu-jitsu but outside of that I think she's very ordinary and I think the big weakness when it comes to Calvillo and I think we could very well see it in this fight I think she has a lot more confidence in her striking than what she actually is because I remember watching her against Carla Esparza and Carla isn't a great striker, and she got outboxed by Carla Esparza. Yeah, I do agree with pretty much all the points you made there. Um, she has gotten a lot of favorable treatment, I'd say, by the UFC in terms of where they put her on cards, especially her headlining that card against Jessica I. That's a huge head scratcher. But I thought she performed well in that fight. I thought she made some improvements in her striking. She definitely is primarily a grappler. 
And this is just a, a tricky matchup. I definitely think that uh, the value on this one is on Kalen Chukagian. The odds in this one have Calvillo as a minus 230 favorite. Actually, minus 255. People are just slamming her line the past few days. I don't get that at all, to be honest. I think that this fight is much closer than those odds indicate. And I think that Chukagian is probably a solid bet at 2-1 to one or over because on the feet – you got to slightly favor Chukagian. I think Calvillo will have some success, but Chukagian has outstruck the much better girls, has that long reach and range that she can use. And Calvillo is only going to look like a big favorite if she hits takedowns. Chukagian has been taken down before. She is kind of not that great off of her back. And Calvillo will win once she gets Chukagian down, but I am not... Uh, over 70% confident that Calvillo lands those takedowns. So there's no way I would be betting Calvillo at her current price. Although I ultimately am going to pick her to win a decision. I don't think that she will submit Chuke again. I would think I think that she hits enough takedowns to win the rounds and to win a decision here. But I think on the feet, I favor Chukagian, and I think this fight has the potential to be very close. Um, not the most exciting fight. I understand why they're putting it on the main card because it does have uh, title implications for whatever that means. Um, but what are your thoughts on who's going to win here, uh, Carl? I would favour Calvillo, and I would favour Calvillo for two reasons. Number one, I usually favour the grappler over the striker. Um, and I think, obviously, Calvillo is a much better grappler than what we saw against Chukasian. However, Chukasian did have that good performance up against Antonina, and I know Antonina's not the greatest grappler in the world, which was maybe Chukasian's path to victory, and she, she sort of played to her opponent's weaknesses rather than her own strengths. Um, I do think Chukasian is a very awkward fighter to deal with. And actually, I even to an extent thought she could give Shevchenko some problems in the title fight just because of how difficult she is to hit. Um, someone made the comparison. She's sort of like the worst traits of Holly Holm and Elias Theodoru. You sort of like take the worst characteristics <laughs> I was, I was of them thinking, uh, I was thinking a woman Stefan Struve, a female <laughs> Stefan Struve. <laughs> no, you see, Caitlin knows how to jab. Oh yeah, that's right. Big distinction. Yeah, so she's a very elusive fighter to deal with, and I could picture maybe Calvillo getting a bit frustrated trying to shoot in for takedowns and Caitlin managing to avoid them. But I think the big factor for me, why I'm sort of leaning towards Calvillo, is Caitlin started speaking a lot more openly about retirement and maybe looking to try and start a family. And I always feel that when you start speaking in that way and you mentally have one foot out the door, you're never really the same fighter. Because I always think yep. about uh, Cole Volkiewicz. I mean, Carolina had a good run until that title fight against Joanna. And I think combination of that loss and then her thinking about a future career, she was just never the same fighter afterwards. And she went through something that was seeing as well with Caitlin, where she was almost burning through her fights so she could get out that contract as quickly as she could. And I'm just worried, is this a similar situation? Is Caitlin just taking this fight for the sake of it. Yeah, I, I definitely think they probably just presented her with a good opportunity, a quick turnaround. She took it, um, wanted to prove that she's a little bit better than getting uh, TKO'd by a body shot in round one. I thought she was actually doing pretty good in that Andrade fight. But yeah, you brought up good points. Calvillo is likely thinking about that title, thinking about Shevchenko. Chukagian already got there. She likely knows that she has no chance at being a champion in the UFC, and she might have really hit her ceiling. Um, it's a shame, though. I, I would like to see her not go out on two losses. I would like to see her maybe get back on track with some, some lower-level competition. Uh, one point I forgot to mention is that Calvillo is really good at catching kicks, and Chukagian kicks a mm -hmm. lot. 
So a lot of kind of weak kicks, too, that she kind of just throws out there. So I think Chukagan's going to have a real hard time just sticking to straight boxing, straight footwork. And I think this is going to be in the small cage as well, which favors Calvillo, favors the grapplers. So I don't think that Chukagan uh, has a great chance in this fight. Ultimately, I do think uh, Calvillo gets her down and gets her top game going. Uh, I don't think that she'll submit her. Do you think uh, she'll get the submission or do you think it'll be a decision, Carl? I'm going to say a decision. I think yep. Caitlin, as we saw against uh, Valentina, I mean, Valentina had a lot of grappling in that fight, but Valentina couldn't really do anything in terms of submissions and eventually went to that crucifix ground and pound, which was beautifully set up. We'll probably talk about that in a lot more detail when we get to Valentina herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ch- I think Chukasian's um, submission defense is just going to be too good. So I do see Calvillo grinding out. At, I'm going to say... I'm going to say 30-27. Yep, me too. Yep. Another factor as well, just before we move on to the next fight, is this fight might not even take place because part of the reason for getting Calvillo on this card is for her to serve as the backup in case Jennifer Meyer can't make weight. Yeah, considering Jennifer Meyer hasn't even mm-hmm. made 125 pounds lately. Like, has she ever weighed in 125 pounds? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> I think in the I think in the three she's had five fights in the UFC and she's missed weight for two of them. Yeah, and the most recent one where she got the title shot. I mean that's just disgusting that they're doing this. Um, oh no, my bad. She weighed in at one twenty four point five for Calderwood. So let's give her a little bit of credit. Um, she missed weight for the Chukagian fight. She missed weight for the Roxanne Matafari fight. So yeah, not a great record with making weight, but hopefully she does honestly. Let's hope so as well. It's going to be an interesting fight. I'm favoring, um, I'm favoring Calvillo for that one, as are yourself. Calvillo by decision? Yep, that's the pick. Yep. It's going to be interesting to see who we pick for fight number three. We're going to the welterweight division now, and we've got two unranked welterweights, including one of the most controversial fighters in the UFC at the moment. Mike Perry was supposed to be taking on Robbie Lawler. Um, Lawler, unfortunately, pulls out due to injury. Tim Means steps in on short notice. And this is Tim Means' first time on the pay-per-view main card, which considering he's been in the UFC for, what, the past 4,000 years, good achievement for him. Yeah, he deserves it, honestly. He always produces entertaining fights. I mean, I think the Steropoli fight wasn't too great, his most recent fight. But before that, I think they were all knockouts in his most recent fights. Um, so he's a fun fighter to watch. And yeah, as you mentioned, Mike Perry, uh, surprising he's still even remaining on this UFC mm-hmm. card, to be honest. Um, there's... Of course, the article that came out about um, the, his domestic abuse issues, you got 911 calls, you have Daniel Nickerson's testimony, you even have Mike Perry's own mom calling the police on him in fear for domestic violence issues. Yet, it doesn't seem to be a problem with the UFC. It's business as usual. They are letting him fight. They're giving him a huge opportunity on a pay-per-view main card, and he makes $90,000 to show, $90,000 to win. So this guy it has reputable evidence that he just abused a woman, uh, beat her severely. And then the UFC is giving him a chance to fight in front of millions of people for $180,000. That's just disgusting behavior that the UFC is condoning. They have a lot of scumbags on the roster who probably have done worse than Mike Perry. But they just can continue to let them fight. 
uh, ethics is not a problem at the UFC. They will allow any scumbags, douchebags, assholes to just keep fighting for the UFC. So um, we will break down this fight shortly, and we will analyze the fight objectively from like a skill perspective. But make no mistake, Mike Perry is a human piece of garbage and does not deserve to be in the UFC. It's a bit war machine, do I dare say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right up there in that category, uh, you can. You, you can. I encourage you, if you haven't looked up the article yet, go read the article. Listen to Danielle Nickerson's story. I fully believe everything that she wrote. Uh, there's no reason to think that she is lying or fabricating any of it. She has irrefutable proof behind a lot of it. So uh, there's really no excuse for a domestic abuser, a man who beats women, to be uh, fighting in the UFC. We will try and talk about this objectively, though. We'll focus first and foremost on Mike Perry. Mike Perry enters this fight actually as the favourite for this one. Just trying to get the odds here that I've got written down. Uh, he's a minus 145 favourite. You can get Tim Means a plus 115. And I have to say, between the two, I, I do favour that betting line. I think that Mike Perry, for all of his flaws, maybe from a personal perspective, he is very capable of getting this fight done by knockout. A lot of power in his hands, especially when he's coming through the regional scene. He has lost that to an extent. He relied on the decision up against Mickey Gall. But when Mike Perry's on, he is capable of getting some big results. Beat Paul Felder. Admittedly, that was a fight on short notice, and Felder suffered, I think, a broken arm in that fight as well, which just shows how tough Paul Felder is. Um, but also, as well, I think he beat Brazilian Cowboy, which was another good win. Um, very close fight against Vicente Luque. So when Mike Perry's on, he is a tough out for any of those sort of like mid-tier welterweight yeah I, I agree i do agree with the betting line here i think it's pretty accurately set where it's at and the thing about perry's power though is he actually hasn't had a knockout since september mm -hmm. 2017 against alex reyes jay gellenberg guys who are not in the ufc so he actually doesn't have a finish over actually he beat danny roberts so one finish over an active UFC fighter. So I think his power has been a bit overrated lately. Um, personally, I actually bet on him to win by knockout versus Mickey Gall. So I've definitely been um, a little uh, put off by his power lately because he did not get that uh, knockout there. He did get a knockdown in that fight. He just didn't really finish up with too much uh, ground and pound or anything. But I really think that Perry ha has not made many improvements lately, uh, and Means is definitely at the end of his career as well. He's been getting rocked in a lot of his recent fights. I mean, if you look at Means' fight, uh, he got knocked out against Nico Price. He got briefly rocked and then came back and won versus Thiago Alves, and he got dropped bad versus uh, Daniel Rodriguez twice. He was even hurt a bit uh, versus Lariano Steropoli, so he cannot take the punches the same as he once could. His defense is not really there, so Perry is live for a knockout, but I think Perry could just win the fight via decision, too, by landing the more harder, impactful strikes. The one thing I will say about Perry is his fight against Vincente Luque is, I think, the most impressive mm -hmm. thing that either of these guys have done lately. I think Perry has a good claim to a him winning that fight versus Luque, him winning rounds one and two, his boxing looks sharp, very accurate and high output boxing in that fight from him. So if the parry from that fight comes in versus uh, Tim Means, he likely will outbox Means, possibly even get a knockout because Perry looks sharp in that fight. Hands were uh, very crisp and he did eventually lose round three and lose a close decision in that one, but I thought he should have won that one. So uh, I'll let you go with your official prediction first, uh, Carl, before I come back to mine. I think even though there have been a lot of flaws with Mike Perry, I think he's a very limited fighter. He does have a lot of power, but he doesn't 
mix it up in the way that he should do to try and set up those power opportunities. I think what the Mike Perry you saw in his UFC debut against uh, Dong, uh, was it Dong Jung Ma? I think he fought. Yeah, Dong Hyun Lim. I think. Dong Jung yeah. Lim um, is the same guy that we're going to be seeing taking on Tim Means this uh, weekend. Um, in a strange way, I actually think that he he spent a little bit of time with Jackson Wink, and in a way that was actually probably one of the the worst things he did because it completely changed the way that Mike Perry fought. It didn't play to his strengths. And I sort of think since then he sort of like tried to reclaim that sort of uh, aggressive knockout artist that a lot of people like when he came into the UFC. But no, I think Tim Means, he had a good run of form around sort of 2015, 2016. He's very hit on this now. And I just think his striking defense isn't good enough. And I can see Perry getting that knockout. I'm going to say second round. I think I'm going to go with the decision for, for Mike Perry, honestly. Um, but I do think that Perry is the much more durable guy. We haven't seen him rocked or hurt nearly as much as we have means lately. Um, both guys also like mixing in a, a offensive takedowns mm-hmm. from time to time. And means really relied on his offensive takedowns, his his clinching versus Steropoli, who was a younger, um, quicker striker. So we might see Means do that here, look to clinch up Perry, get him frustrated against the fence, maybe hit a takedown and put Perry on his back. And one thing I will say also about Perry is he does tend to struggle with southpaws. Means is a mm-hmm. southpaw. His boxing is still sharp, Tim Means. He still has very fast hands. He just can't really see the punches coming back at him too well. So I eventually do think that Perry wins a close decision here, but the boxing exchanges will be real close. Both guys are real live to hit a takedown or get their grappling going. So it has the potential to be a close decision for either guy. I am going to go with Mike Perry to win the close decision, uh, but the odds on this one are about right. I don't think I'll be betting either side in this one. And ca- but if more money comes in on Perry and Tim Means goes up to a bigger underdog, I will start to eye a bet on Tim Means. And of course, a big question from the Mike Perry perspective, will uh, the legendary Coach Latori be in his corner? Oh yeah, of course. Um, yeah, she's, I don't even know if there's much to say about her. It was a funny joke for a little bit, but you know, with what has come to late to light lately uh, about uh, her, or about him abusing women, you just gotta know that there's huge potential for that relationship to end badly. Um, so. Did anything, It'll be funny. It'll be a funny. Did sight. anything come of Mike Perry trying to sell his um, corner to uh, Darren Till? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, um, Dana White said that said that you can't do that. But I mean, I don't see how he would stop anybody from doing that. Um, Dana is just so greedy. He was like, ah, you know, if you give me twenty percent of that, I'll let you do it. But until that, uh, I'm not. I'm not letting it happen. <laughs> okay. Okay, so it's core main event time. It's the Women's Flyweight Championship. So we've got a double bill when it comes to the Flyweight title fights. We'll talk about the men's version of the belt uh, in just a couple of moments' time. For this time, we're all be talking about the female division. And Valentina Shevchenko is back in action. And she's going to be taking on Jennifer Meyer. So we've got the champion taking on the number three seed here. A fighter who is three and two so far in the UFC. But coming off a good submission over Joanne Caldwood last time out. Bookmakers aren't really giving Maya much of a chance here. You can get Shevchenko at a minus 1,200 favourite, which is the second biggest favourite that she's been, first being Jessica Rye. Are the bookmakers on on point with this one? Or do you, do you see a chance for Jennifer Maya somewhere? Yeah, so the, the average I'm, odds I'm seeing are about minus 1,400, which is 14 divided by 15, 93.3%. And I think that that is very accurate. Um, 
I think that Shevchenko's chances are around 95%, honestly. I think you can't go much higher than that because there's always injury. There's always some crazy stuff that could happen in a fight where you can't be that confident. Um, but yeah, this is a very, very bad matchup for Jennifer Maya. As you mentioned, only three and two. She's been defeated by Liz Carmouche, and she also got defeated by Caitlin Chukagian. I will say that. Go ahead. Who are both two people who were Shevchenko's beaten recently? Yeah, yeah. Also, um, so Maya's best performance was likely her win over Roxanne Matafari. That was her best fifteen-minute performance. Although she did miss weight for that fight, um, she was had a, a kick caught versus Joanne Calderwood. Got put on her back, and then women's MMA comes through. We got a guard guard submission with an armbar. I don't think we've seen a guard men's men's armbar in about. 15 years but for some reason they happen in women's MMA about every month I think I've read somewhere that the amount of submissions by arm bars is like 15% for the men and it's I think 40% for the women that's hilarious I, I would actually guess it, it's a little lower for men I mean they're they're quite rare in men's MMA nowadays but like I said they're extremely common in women's MMA so we'll start by talking about Valentina Shevchenko who is I believe she, this is going to be the fourth defense of the title and Shevchenko has had a lot of impressive performances so far in the UFC, but I would go as far as put her win against Chukasian as probably, it's either that or the Holly Holm win in terms of her actual best UFC fight because I actually thought Caitlin Chukasian could cause Shevchenko some problems just for how awkward of a fighter she is. But she handled all those difficulties, managed to mix in the takedowns and the striking and then got that uh, finish by strikes in the crucifix. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't put it in her top three wins. I would still go with uh, Holm. Uh, no, I would go with Joanna Jajek, then Holm, and then probably Juliana Pena in terms of uh, her most impressive wins. I am impressed with the way about about how she goes about these mashups. She goes about them very efficiently. She knows where her opponent's weaknesses are, and she really looks to exploit them and gets the fight over with. The only one where she didn't do that was the Liz Carmouche fight, which is one of the worst fights in UFC history. Um, I don't remember too much about that except for Shevchenko would take her down and just keep her on her back for the full five minutes of every round. Uh, I, no one in the world has ever rewatched that fight, so no one will know for sure how it really went. But so Maya got outstruck by Caitlin Chukagian, and Maya was taken down by JoJo Calderwood. She was taken down by Liz Carmouche. And she was stuck on bottom versus Liz Carmouche as well. And Shevchenko is a better striker than Chukagian. She's a better grappler, wrestler than Carmouche or Calderwood. And I just don't see how Maya will have any success when Shevchenko is so uh, exponentially better than her everywhere. Uh, Maya would have to put on an incredible 25-minute performance where she uses footwork. She outboxes Shevchenko. She doesn't throw many kicks because her kicks can be caught. And she will have to circle around the small cage using impeccable footwork and boxing for 25 minutes straight. And I do not think that has any chance at happening. I think that Shevchenko gets takedowns, catches kicks, somehow gets the fight to the floor. And we will see a finish from Valentina Shevchenko on the mat in rounds two or three here. I do not think it goes into the championship rounds. I think that Maya is just so bad off of her back. One thing I, I actually forgot to mention this. Alexis Davis caught a kick from uh, Jennifer Maya and took her down and Maya was on her back for three and a half to four minutes versus Alexis Davis so there's just no chance in my opinion that Maya is able to 
withstand the grappling from Shevchenko and not get finished. So unless Shevchenko takes it easy on her and just kickboxes with her for fifteen or for twenty-five minutes, I don't see this any way this fight doesn't end by finish. So I'm gonna go with Shevchenko. What do you think? Submission or TKO? What are you thinking for prediction, Carl? I'm I'm actually lean, I, I can actually see Valentina maybe uh, doing it by decision. I think it's going to be maybe okay. one of those sort of like 50-45 um, fights, which Shevchenko's capable of doing. Shevchenko, if she wants to finish, she can do, but sometimes she does like to play it safe and make sure that she grinds out that victory. In terms of Jennifer Meyer, I, I think there's two big strengths that she has in this fight. The first is her last fight was against Joanne Caldwood, who's also a Muay Thai specialist, and she had a lot of success in that first round because... The best way to beat a Muay Thai fighter is to have that sort of brawling style, keep coming forward, and to throw a Muay Thai fighter off with pressure. And Jennifer Meyer, to her credit, was able to do that against Giorgio. So she was brawling in, she was mixing in those sneaky leg kicks, and she was having success. So she knows how to fight a Muay Thai fighter, but Shevchenko's distance management is very, very good. So I don't know if she's going to be as successful. But also as well, Shevchenko's a fighter, in my opinion, who performs better the more active she is. She likes those four or five month turnarounds. And this time she's taken nine or ten months. I believe the injury was to, I believe, her knee. And for somebody who's quite kick heavy, you do wonder how much of a long term effect that's going to have. But if everything's 100% with both fighters, I would favor Shevchenko to win this one. Those are the only two question marks that make me think Maya's got somewhat of a chance yeah i actually didn't even know shevchenko had an injury and i don't think that that'll come into play at all and even if maya has that approach the same approach versus uh, she did versus Cotterwood, like you mentioned the distance management the footwork the counter striking of shevchenko they're all just so much better to the point where i think that if maya is aggressive on the feet she has a higher chance at getting countered and getting hurt with the strike like uh jessica i did so i think that she will be in massive danger anywhere this fight goes. And I, I do think I'm pretty confident in a finish in this one. I'm going to go with a third round TKO for Shevchenko in this one. I think she probably will start slow as she typically does, but she'll turn it up in rounds two and three. And I would be really shocked to see this one go into rounds four and five. I think Chukagian is a much better fighter than Maya. And um, Shevchenko was able to get her out of there in about 11 minutes. So I think Shevchenko finds the finish here. I think that's the way a lot of people are thinking. Just looking at the poll that we posted on the community page, you can get Shevchenko as a 95%. Most people think she's going to win 95%. You can get Jennifer Meyer with 5%. Yep, that's what the odds say about too. You know, 93% for um, Shevchenko. I think Maya would be the biggest underdog in UFC history to if she did pull off the upset. I think that Sheena Dobson earlier this year was at like plus 800, and that's the biggest. So Maya as a 9-1 underdog right now would be the biggest underdog in UFC history. Uh, I don't think it happens, though. You don't realize that people are going to come back and post that if you get this wrong now. That's cool. That's cool. They can come, they can throw it all in my face. But, hey, I, I, did, I did tweet out Sheena Dobson by knockout before that happened I, I i was sort of a joke i said lock in your bets shana dobson by knockout is plus 
2000, and guess what? Shane Dobson knocked her out. So I'm still technically a genius, no matter even even if I get this one wrong. Well, that's the thing. We're putting our we're putting ourselves on the line, but we're, we're open enough to say, hey, this is what we think is going to happen because we got that a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, you picked uh, Gagey to beat Khabib. And then after the fight, you had loads of people saying, ha ha, what the hell were you talking about? All that sort of stuff. But that's part and parcel of this. We, we, we're not experts. We just, we go with our guts. We go with what our logic says. And if we get it wrong, that's fine. Yeah, I think I went back and checked the video and I didn't see anybody flaming me. Maybe I'll have to go back and see if people are making fun of I'll me. I probably deleted them. <laughs> <laughs> it is time for us to talk about our main event of the evening. It is Davison Figueredo taking on Alex Perez. And a bit of a history-making one as well. It is the first time since UFC 191 that the flyweights are headlining a pay-per-view. I'd love to see it, honestly. I'm really excited. Uh, I've been a huge fan of the flyweight division for a long time now. I think it's one of the most underrated divisions. So many great fighters. Um, I think people really underestimate how skilled the guys are just because they're so small and fast and agile. But making no mistake, I think it takes the highest skill of any division. I think that the, to even be ranked in a flyweight, you could be a champion in other weight classes potentially. So I'm really excited for this fight. And I think I like this fight better than the Cody Garbrandt fight. Uh, how about you, Carl? Are you more excited for Perez versus Figueredo, or what would you have liked to seen uh, Cody versus Figueredo? I have to be honest, in, it depends on which way you look at it, to be honest. In terms of what I believe is more deserving, this is the more this is the better fight for me because I think that one of the big things to come out of the lockdown era in my opinion has been the quality of the flyweight division because this was a division that the UFC were very very close to closing down but then Dana White spared them and said hey you've got to prove to yourself you're worthy of being part of this promotion and the quality of the flyweight matches has been absolutely brilliant during 2020 so I think these guys have earned their place in the UFC and I see this fight as a reward for that, for both Figueredo, Perez, but also Brandon Moreno, Oscar Askarov, Alexander Pantoja, all those guys. Um, in terms of what I thought was a better fight, I actually think Figueredo versus Garbrandt could have been very, very entertaining. Because you got two come forward knockout artists, both very aggressive. It could have been a very entertaining fight. My one fear though is if Cody Garbrandt had won that fight, which he's very capable of doing because he has a lot of power. The first thing he would have done was take that belt and jump straight back up the bantamweight and try and fight Piotr Jan. And then Flyweight ends up in the same place it was when Hudo jumped up the bantamweight. Yeah, good points. I think I think our last podcast or two podcasts ago we talked about this uh, and Cody not deserving the title shot. So a little bit of a blessing in disguise, him getting replaced here. And I actually think this fight is much more uh, deserving, obviously. You have Perez, who is 6-1 and one at flyweight in the UFC. Cody Garbrandt, who is 0-0 zero and zero at flyweight in the UFC. And Perez, I think, presents a lot more of a difficult fight. I think that I had Figueroa's chances at around 75-80% to 80% for the Cody Garbrandt fight, believe it or not. And for this fight, I'm more around 65-70% to 70% at maximum. And I think that Perez presents a lot more difficult style, uh, stylistic matchup for Figueroa. And I think that 
Perez has been a bit untested lately. He hasn't fought the highest level competition in the UFC. Um, he fought Benavidez, had that crazy weird headbutt that led to his knockout exchange. And his other really high level victory is over Formiga. His most recent fight was just chopping down the legs that you see of Formiga. It was a bit of a competitive striking fight, but Perez's leg kick, his calf kick was a huge X factor in that fight and led to a finish. And Figueroa has had such an entertaining run in the UFC. He's only really struggled with grappling. He's only struggled with the takedowns of Jared Brooks. Jared Brooks took him down for about seven minutes, kept him on his back for a lot of that fight. And Juicia Formiga, who I just mentioned, uh, also took down uh, Figueredo, was able to pass his guard, mount him a few times, and win that fight via decision. So we've only really seen Davison Figueredo struggle with takedowns and grappling in the UFC, and Perez presents a bigger takedown and grappling threat than Garbrandt. So I think this fight is very entertaining. Um, I'll pass it back to you, Carl, before so we don't talk for 10 minutes straight on this one because this is such a great fight. Uh, I'll pass it back so you can share some more of your thoughts. Do you think the Formiga factor is going to play a role in these two? Because it's obviously going to be a favor for Alex Perez that he was able to beat a guy in the first round that Figueiredo lost to. Um, it's possible, but I think... The Formiga did lose by knockout in between those two fights, so he did, you know, suffer a little more mileage, a little extra, um, extra damage, and he had that fight versus Marino where he lost. So I think that uh, the figure, the Formiga that Figueroa fought was a much better fighter than the one that Perez fought, but you still got to look at the head-to-head wins and say that. Figueroa lost a one, and then Perez finished him, and that's got to be a feather in the cap of Perez. The counter-argument to that, though, is that Perez lost to Joe Benavidez, and Figueroa beat him twice. Yeah, true. And uh, another weird aspect of that fight, because that Perez fight was so weird, you can watch that fight in slow motion. There was some weird headbutt that went on in that fight that eventually led to the finish of Perez, and I don't really think that that result was super... um, indicative of how that matchup goes so it's a shame we never got to see a, a rematch of that fight uh Perez and Benavidez um, but we did see the rematch of Figueredo and Benavidez an absolutely brutal brutal fight uh Figueredo nearly killed him in that fight with so many knockdowns and choke attempts pretty hard to watch honestly the way the fig dismantled uh, Benavidez there and I think you can see a big factor in that when you look at the betting odds of Figueredo just looking at my notes here you've got Figueredo minus 310 Alex Perez plus 240 how much of that is due to uh, the performance against Benavidez? As fantastic as it was to do that to a guy who, let's be honest, should have been a UFC champion multiple times over. Very impressive. But how much of it was also taking advantage of a 35-year-old guy with a lot of mileage behind him? Yeah, I do agree that Figueroa got Benavidez at the right time. I mean, it still would have been a, an interesting matchup even earlier on in Benavidez's career just because... Of the way that Benavidez leans his head in, he was always susceptible to big counter punches. Of course, that's what Demetrius Johnson put him out with uh, seven years ago or something. So Figueroa would have always been a dangerous matchup to Benavidez, but he did get very fortunate timing uh, in the terms of the career of Benavidez. And I do think that we could be seeing Figueroa being a little bit overvalued in mm. the betting lines coming off of those two nasty finishes over a high-level fighter in Benavidez. Because he still has the problem of takedown defense. We did see some slight improvements in the Pantoja fight. Uh, We saw some great scrambling ability and submission attempts versus Benavidez. And I will say that about Figueroa is only the best of the best control grapplers can really hold him down. 
Formiga was able to hold him down, but even Jared Brooks was mostly taking him down, and then Figueroa would work his way back up to the feet and get right back to doing damage. Figueroa is great at scrambling and throwing up submissions. He has a very tight guillotine choke that he caught Tim Elliott with when he tried to shoot for a takedown. So even when you're trying to wrestle Figueroa, he can threaten you with that guillotine. He can threaten you with arm bars. He has good uh, good strikes off of his back. When he was on his back versus Formiga, he was cutting Formiga with punches and elbows off of his back. So even if you're taking down Figueroa, and getting your grappling going, you're still in danger of submissions, ground and pounds, his insane athleticism and scrambling ability. So even if best case scenario for Alex Perez, he lands takedowns here and gets Figueroa off of his feet, he's going to have a hard time keeping Figueroa down. And he's going to have a hard time doing meaningful work with those takedowns, landing ground and pound, going for submissions. Um, even the best grappler in flyweight, Formiga, wasn't able to submit Figueroa. So I do not think that Perez is going to submit Figueroa. It's extremely hard to see him landing a, a, a TKO from ground and pound on Fig. So the way I see Perez winning this fight is by decision. It's by competing on the feet, having success with his leg kicks, landing some takedowns, winning some rounds with top position. But he's really going to have to put on... A very well-rounded performance where he competes on the feet, he hits takedowns, he has incredible cardio to go into the later rounds. And personally, I have not seen enough of Perez, enough uh, skill against high-level competition to think that he does that here. Um, so ultimately, I will be picking Figueroa, but uh, I'll, I'll go back to Carl before I give my final thoughts on the odds and the prediction and everything. I think if Alex Perez is going to have... A chance of winning this fight obviously he's going to be mixing in the takedowns and he is good college wrestler so he's always got that in his back pocket and I do see him landing maybe one or two takedowns in the fight but also as well he's very fast for the weight class I mean flyweight is a fast weight class itself but if there's one issue I've had with Figueredo he maybe is he's a bit of a brawler in terms of like just trying to land that big right hand and he does use some good angles to try and generate all that power but I can see Alex Perez getting on the inside, trying to land those quick shots like he did against Shorty Torres, which helped lead to the stoppage in that one. I, I, I'm not confident enough to say that Alex Perez is going to win this fight by any means. But I'm looking at the community post. And at the moment, they've got Figueredo at 90% to win this one over Alex Perez at 10%. I mean, put it this way. People give Felicia Spencer more of a chance to win her fight than they're giving Alex Perez, which I think is incredibly harsh. Yeah, he's getting disrespected here um, for sure. Even even like I mentioned, the betting line has him at 75% Figueredo. I think at best I would cap him 67 to 70%. So the betting value is on Perez in this one. He has a path to victory with those takedowns. And he's a good striker as well. You mentioned his performance against Shorty Torres. He showed great boxing, high output, good power in that one. He's a skilled boxer. He has those great calf kicks, as we mentioned. So he can compete on the feet versus Perez or versus Figueroa. But I have just seen a lot more striking, a lot more accuracy, and of course the power from mm-hmm. Figueroa. I just haven't seen enough high-level striking from Perez to think that he will be able to compete and win the striking versus Figueroa, which I ultimately think he will have to do to win. So for my official prediction, I I agree with you. I think that uh, we see Perez land some takedowns early. I think Perez will land two to three takedowns, but Figueroa is going to be getting back up to the feet. He's going to be landing clinch strikes, very skilled clinch striker, good at landing elbows and knees on the break. 
And like the Jared Brooks fight, he's just going to be landing significant damage at range. And I think it eventually land, uh, accumulates and becomes a knockout for Figueroa. I'm going to go at the end of round two, early round three. I'll go with a, an official Figueroa knockout round two as my official pick. I'm going to say I'm going to say third round, but I agree with you. I think Figueroa gets it done with the hands in the third round. I think Alex Perez is going to start the fight strong. I can see him maybe winning the first round. But we will see Figueredo maybe come into his own in the second and get that stoppage in the third. It would be interesting to see if it does go into the championship round though, because the big factor with Figueredo as well, he cuts a lot of weight to get down to 125. And if he does try and carry that into the fourth or fifth round, how much card how much is is his cardio gonna be hurting? Yep. Any very athletic, explosive fighter, a lot of big actions, a lot of like if he's if he's escaping the takedowns, he's going to be using a lot of energy to scramble and, and possibly give up his back, get up to the feet. And when he's on the feet, he's swinging for the fence, his big, um, you know, huge haymakers and elbows. He does have a very high energy type of style, and we could start to see him slow down, gas out in rounds three, four, and five if it does get there. That is a, that is a big concern, and I agree with Perez having a, a good chance of winning round one. Uh, Jared Jared Brooks is that his name was able to take down uh, Perez or Figueroa a lot in round one. Uh, I think that's really the fight you got to look at in this fight. Watch Davison Figueroa versus Jared Brooks, and you can see a lot of the ways that Perez might have success in this fight. But you also can see a lot of the ways where he might struggle because even though Brooks was getting those takedowns, it was getting some top time. Figueroa stood right up and was getting right back to landing those huge elbows and punches. And even though he was getting the takedowns and top control, Figueroa's damage and his strikes were outweighing Brooks's takedowns. And that's why Figueroa won that fight via decision, although it was an extremely close decision. There are currently four UFC pay-per-views which have failed to break the 100,000 barrier. UFC 53, 215, 224, 250. Do we add two fifty five to this list? No, I think I think this one will do uh, one hundred and fifty, you know, low numbers or something like that. I I think that people um, will realize enough that Figueroa uh, and Chevchenko has a, a minute amount of, of popular popularity around her as well. But with the way the UFC puts like the free fights on the YouTube channels, I mean, all they have to do is put up a few of Figueroa's most recent fights. You'll just see him knocking guys dead with his hands. Um, anybody who watches Figueroa versus Pantoja or Perez versus um, Shorty Torres, I don't understand how you could not think this fight's going to be exciting. It has uh, fireworks written all over it. I would be extremely shocked for this not to be an exciting, entertaining fight. Uh, you can come back on me in a week with that one if I'm wrong <laughs> about this one. But I expect fireworks. I expect a, a competitive fight early, but Figueroa will eventually land that uh, that knockout in the middle rounds. So uh, in all, your general assessment of UFC 255, is this one that we're going to be uh, mocking all the casuals for and saying, uh, how the hell did you miss this one? This is an absolute classic. Um, no, I wouldn't. I mean... I... I don't know. I think it's I think it's a, a B plus pay per view. Let's go with. I think uh, it doesn't really have that huge name to put it into an A an A category, but it's got a lot of solid fights. I'm really excited for the main event. Uh, I think I'm really excited. It's got a lot more like individual fighters that you like to see in terms of instead of 
competitive fights. You know, like Paul Craig is going to be exciting. Joaquin Buckley are going to be exciting. Um, not necessarily the matchups themselves, but we have some entertaining fighters. And, and, you know, I have high hopes for this Saturday. I think it'll be a good card. And we hope that you enjoy it as well. USC 255 taking place this Saturday. Figueroa versus Perez. Shevchenko versus Maya. Um, I'll certainly be tuning in for this one, mainly because it's free here in the UK. Um, and I want to say a big thank you as well, John, for joining us here. Uh, you weren't able to uh, record yesterday on the Sunday. Uh, we are able to do it today. And... Um, I think it's fantastic that we've been able to do this in the absolute pitch black here in the northeast. Yep, yep, it's still nice and nice and bright for me here, um, as you can see from my camera. But yeah, thanks as always, Carl, for having me on the It's Not Cage Fighting channel. It's an awesome YouTube channel. I uh, produce a lot of you, uh, a lot of great videos, and I'm happy to always be on the preview show. And I'm happy we're making this a little tradition. Uh, it's been fun to analyze these fights. And make sure you guys check out the Martian MMA podcast. It is on YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes. As I mentioned in the beginning, I've made a podcast before every single UFC event for about 115, 120 events in a row. So I never miss an event. I always talk about the betting lines, and I always analyze every single fight on the card from top to bottom. So that's where you can check me out at. And uh, thanks again, Carl, and the It's Not, Fight, it's Not Cage Fighting uh, channel for having me You're on. very welcome, John. You've been a fantastic guest as always. And we'll hope to have you back for our final card of 2020, UFC 256. Uh, Piotr Jan versus Aldermain Sterling is scheduled to headline that one. We'll need to break out the Christmas jumpers. Yep, sounds good. I, I'm Book me in. I'm there. Uh, hope everybody went, enjoys the card this weekend. Hope you all win some bets. And I hope it's some exciting fights. Certainly so. Thank you very much for joining me, John. Uh, my name's Big Carl Bainbridge. This is the INC. And thank you for watching.